Hello and welcome again to another episode of our program, Develop. It is our absolute honor and privilege to have your company with us as we continue our exploration in this series we titled Holiness Movement. And the whole premise of this series is that the brand of Christianity that Jesus lived and died and rose again to introduce the planet Earth was all about living the life of God in us by the power of the Spirit. Throughout Genesis to Revelation, God repeatedly invites His followers to live holy just as God is holy. And we have been in the past few uh, sessions discussing together the failures, the reasons we fail to pursue a life of holiness as Jesus' followers. And the first two sessions, we looked at the false inception of our Christian journeys, where we basically put our energies in, uh, you know, provoking a response instead of helping uh, people to repent and believe, allowing the Holy Spirit to regenerate them and take them into a brand new way of life with a different different lifestyle, a lifestyle that manifests the character of Christ, the holy life of the Holy One by the power of the Spirit in us. So those who begin, uh, you know, with a, a false understanding of Christianity, uh, therefore are susceptible to believing that they followers of Jesus when the scripture gives some evidence to, contrary or to the contrary of that. Uh, but then let's look at people who truly begin a, a genuine walk with Jesus, who have repented of their sins, who have accepted the regeneration of the Spirit, who have experienced a, a, you know, the sonship with, with, with God as their Father. There is some uh, fact. Uh, that we are warned of in the scripture that can cause even genuine followers of Jesus to fail to pursue a life of holiness. They become stagnant. Uh, they maybe even backslide. They may deteriorate in their walk with Jesus. And one of those things uh, uh, come as a result of confusing the concept of grace and law, grace and law, the God's free favor and standards and, uh, and, and ways of living life with God based on His principles manifesting His nature. And, uh, uh, you know, the reality is we all have experienced situations where we uh, get a, in a bit of a tangle about the differentiation between our positions, our, our, our privileges, and our expected behaviors, and the way we live our life. Uh, I came to Australia with my mom and dad 
uh, back in 1989. We migrated to Australia for dad's uh, ministry and we left behind um, my three siblings in Cairo, Egypt. When we first came here, um, you know, it was a brand new life, brand new people, brand new church, um, and, uh, and, and it's just a brand new way of living. Uh, I was, uh, you know, really uh, connected to uh, my parents and we had, a, you know, a harmonious relationship until uh, I was uh, maybe a couple of years later or so where I had uh, just a conflict of uh, standards between their expectations and my expectation in a particular uh, uh, area of life. And we had a bit of verbal conflict that led to a bit of an emotional divorce of, of our interactions. I had, you know, as a, as a you know, uh, unpleasant teenager, I gave them the cold shoulder. And particularly, I remember uh, vividly, in fact, Every morning um, during my year, uh, I think it would have been year 12 studies, my dad would wake up and take me to school in a, uh, in a Holden Commodore car, which was just so beautiful back in the day. I don't know whether it's still as funky now. It was so good. It was so uh, spacious. And my dad would uh, sometimes enable me to drive as a learner driver. But despite of his kindness uh, to support me in my endeavors, to make sure that I didn't travel uh, by transportations and, and I'm reaching uh, my school in a comfortable way, um, I did not communicate with him throughout the ride to school day in and day out. I would basically be silent. And, you know, I, I mismanaged the trust and the love and the care and the favor and the generosity of my dad. I didn't reciprocate that. In fact, I, I'm pretty confident that I, I made his life feel miserable, that he had only one child here in Melbourne, and that child was miles apart emotionally from the family. I probably was a thorn in the flesh of my parents. They probably didn't know what else to do, what other uh, ways in which they could deal with me to turn our interactions around and to create harmonious, loving environment for our family. I knew that they loved me, but I didn't participate in that reciprocal relationship. I broke every rule and I did not uh, you know, adhere to our family principles and values. Did that uh, way of living change my parents and particularly my dad's love for me daily as he expressed that love in practical ways? No, I was no less a child because breaking the family rules and values than I was when I was in full harmony with my parents. They loved me just the same. But you can't tell me that they were pleased with the way I lived my life. They didn't rub me off their will. They didn't disassociate with me and, and, and uh, publicly shamed me. Absolutely not. But they were heartbroken by the fact that I was breaking our family tradition and rules and standards and principles. Rules and love actually are closely knit 
than we imagine them to be. And so many times in my Christian experience, I have heard people on both sides of the spectrum. People that say life with Jesus is all about loving relationship. It's all about done, not do. It's all about just receiving His forgiveness and His favor and bathe in His love and goodness. And others go to the absolute other extreme and say life with Jesus is all about obeying and abiding by His rules, by His commands, by His standards. And all of the sudden, we create a Christianity that is on opposite ends. We create opposition out of things that God didn't want to have contradictory in our existence. As it's been shared many a times, our Christian and uh, particularly coming from a um, you know the uh, Old Testament type of theology, we realize that the Hebraic uh, mindset is about binaries, is about two things that seemingly contradictory, but they go together despite of the tension. It's like the train tracks; they don't have to collide. They basically separate, but they both need it. And I believe that's exactly what happened in the church of Rome that Paul wrote to them uh, around maybe 57 AD. Paul wrote to them to, uh, to, to seemingly a divided church. They were primarily Gentiles, but the Jews who had left the city had come back to a, an environment where they're Christian Gentiles and the Jewish uh, Christians were a little bit, com- uh, you know, uh, um, uh, they were troubled by the idea of a gospel that equates living for Jesus by faith to their understanding of the Jewish Torah and the way that you have to make your way um, you know, in God's good books by the way you perform observing the Old Testament rules and regulations. And these Gentiles, they had no idea about the, the, the observing the, the, um, uh, the, the law and the Torah. They just were taught to believe on Jesus, to trust on Him, to repent of their uh, old lifestyle and to live wholeheartedly for the one who lived and died again. So there was a bit of conflict and Paul wrote to unite them together in the mission that Paul wanted them to have partnership with him in as he was coming to uh, through Rome to reach out the, the, the region of Spain and beyond. So he systematically documents the message of Christianity particularly what is well known as the gospel message, the good news and the entire summary of the book could be said the righteousness of God by grace through faith. The righteousness of God that is revealed by grace because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and it's received by 
faith uh, for those followers of Jesus. It's righteousness different from the old way the Jewish people considered righteousness. And in order to really help them to be on the same page, uh, the book of, um, of Romans is divided maybe into two uh, segments. There's obviously uh, far more articulate ways and detailed ways of um, um, you know, expressing the divisions and the contents of the book. But essentially beliefs are page uh, the chapter 1 to 10 and behaviors are chapter 11 to 16, the practicalities of living the faith. And the, the first section, Paul addresses the concept of sin. In fact, from chapter 1, verses 18 uh, to chapter 3, uh, um, uh, around 20 or so, he speaks about sin and the guilt of humanity. He speaks about the sin of the pagan world and he speaks about the sin of the Jewish people who are religious and they should have known better, but they're living a hypocritical life. They're trying to earn God's graces by their performances, which they are failing to live them out. And Paul, uh, you know, comes to the point of saying every person will be silenced in the courts of heaven because they can't really justify the way they're living their life. It's, it's separation from God that implicates their nature and implicates their lifestyle. He calls wickedness. They're godless and wicked. And, and then he, he puts us in a corner where we say, okay, so what can we do? So how can we connect and be right with God if we all are silenced and guilty and condemned uh, because of our lifestyle, regardless whether we're pagans or Jews? Well, Paul brings the good news of Jesus. And from chapter 3, around 20 or so, up until chapter end of chapter 5, he speaks about us being justified, justified by faith. Justification is, is, is a is a, a huge concept where God declares the guilty righteous. He declares us not guilty. He is just in, in that way because He paid for the penalty of that guilty sinner. And He's not just just, but now can justify the sinner. Why? Can justify the sinner because God will not exert the penalty of the same sin twice. So the uh, the, the amazing, innocent, righteous Jesus paid the penalty for sinners so they don't have to pay that again. And they have a positional uh, right standing with God through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's an unbelievable new concept for the Jews. Is that you, you mean we don't have to do anything to earn God's favor? You mean we don't have to obey every command to intricate details? And they had something like 613 commands. Uh, and how, how can we do that? How can we be set free? And how can we have favor with God based on someone else's righteousness? And that's the mystery of the substitute sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of those who would receive it by faith. Uh, but that as a result um, created different responses from followers of Jesus that 
uh, enabled Paul to clarify through that letter of a section we would could uh, call sanctification, chapter 6 to 8, where he expresses the lifestyle of the true followers of Jesus and their attitude towards that grace that justifies them. So that the imparted righteousness of Christ is given to them, not just the imputed righteousness given to their account, which is justification. Here they live it out. And Paul was addressing the righteousness of God by grace. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and up to 25, he says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous, that means justified, in God's sight by the works of the law. You can't work your way into God's good books. You can't perform your way in justifying uh, you know, your life before God. You can't measure up to the standard of God's holiness and perfection. We fall short of the glory of God. Rather, Paul says, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So let me give you an example. If you've got a sign on the side of the road that says 60, that's your speed limit, and you are traveling on 67, this sign convicts you. It makes you conscious of your error. It makes you conscious of your, that, that you're misaligned to the rules of the road. And exactly that's what the law did. But then Paul goes on to say, but now, in that new era after Jesus, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known or revealed to which the law and the prophets testify. That The Old Testament testifies to that. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace. So those who are justified freely by God's grace fall into two responses. Number one, those who receive this grace and take advantage of it and they live a license to sin. They have love. They, you know, yes, I receive God's love, but they have, they abide by no rules. They abide by no standards. They abide by no principles. But then there's others that are legalistic and they say it's all about rules and they don't have that connection and intimacy and they don't cultivate the love relationship with Jesus. And Paul addresses the license uh, and, and, and perversion of the gospel in chapter 6 of Romans. He addresses the legalistic uh, uh, point of view in chapter 7 and then he gives them the solution in chapter 8. So let's briefly have a look at those. In chapter 6 and verses 1 and 15, Paul repeats the same concept and he almost asks a question that may have been familiar in the church uh, in Rome. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Some people may have been saying that, saying that we should just go sinning because grace abounds even more uh, to the sinner. But Paul says, by no means. That means absolutely no way. 
And then again, in, in verse 15, it says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, that we're not under rules, but under grace? Paul again says, by no means. There is no way that you say, I have been truly justified. And we're not now talking about hypothetical. We're talking about people who have received the genuine free gift of grace and have been regenerated. But the response, they can't say, okay, now I'm going to live in sin. That doesn't make sense. And that happened in other areas of the gospel, even in Jude chapter 4, where it says that people perverted the grace of our God, turning it into a license for immorality. And that is perversion to the grace of God. That is not a result of a proper understanding and response to grace. That's a perversion of the gospel. But to the others who are trying to walk their way and perform their way as a result of their own endeavors and, and good behaviors, Paul is saying to them, the law and the rules cannot make you right with God. In fact, by the law by itself, you cannot live the life that is commended before God. You cannot even obey the law. He gives himself as an example. It says, for what I want to do in, in Romans chapter 7, it's the whole chapter on that. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. And then he goes on and says, it's not I. He agrees with that law that the law is good. It is, these, uh, it is no longer I myself who do that sin, but it's sin living in me. The sinful nature on the inside rebels against God's law. It says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I cannot carry it out. That's in Romans chapter 7, 14 to 20. Uh, you know, again in Galatians, which is a, a similar book to, to Romans, addresses the same concept. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, 10 to 13, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. So Paul makes it utterly clear that justification does not re result, a proper understanding of justification does not result in an attitude of license towards sin and, and living life as we wish and not change people. But also it doesn't uh, um, you know, produce a legalistic framework where I feel like my performance is what's gaining me favor with God and what will justify me before God. And then he mentions in Romans chapter 8, the combination of love and law and the liberty to live out the law of God by the Spirit. So, uh, you know, again, he mentions uh, throughout Romans chapter 6 that we do not offer any part of ourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather we offer ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And we offer every part of ourselves to Him as an instrument of righteousness. And then in verse 19, I believe He says, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. 
In a simple way, Paul is saying no to license. Do not give yourself over to live like you've lived in the past and adopt an attitude of immorality because you're not under the law anymore. Rather, live a life of righteousness leading to a holy living. And again in Romans 7, 46, it speaks that we died to the law. That the law has no, uh, uh, you know, influence over us. That it has no uh, obligation over us. Uh, he says, for example, in Romans 7, he says, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say we've been released from the law so that we could live as we wish. He's saying we serve God. We, we live under the banner of God, but in a new way, the way of the Spirit. And that's the amazing chapter of Romans 8, the solution to uh, the way that people go to extremes. And he says, no, 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 the right response to accepting the true grace is living by the Spirit. Under the law of the Spirit. He says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That justification. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it weakened by the flesh, by our selfish, sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Have you noticed again and again that the Spirit of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, has set us free from being bound to the law of sin and our inclination to sin that leads to death. But at the same time, there is another law. The law of the Spirit that will live according to that law that will live in the liberty of the children of God and live in love and in obedience to God. I often try to illustrate this concept of those laws uh, through the law of gravity and the law of buoyancy. The law of gravity wants to attract you down. But if you put, for example, a nail in wood and you allow it to float on the water, it won't sink in the ocean. Because there is the law of buoyancy that overwhelms the law of gravity. So here, God realized that because of our sinful fleshly inclinations, we cannot obey Him. We can't live the image that He created us to bear. We can't be holy like our Father in heaven is holy, right? We cannot abide by His glorious standards that reveal His nature. So what did God do? He promised the Holy Spirit that will liberate us from our 
uh, you know, inclination to sin. So the law was to tutor us, leading us to Christ. And it says in Galatians 3, 23 to 26. So uh, we often as Christians say that's all that the law did. It, the law brought us to Christ, declared that we're guilty, made us conscious of our sins, and now it has absolutely no uh, place whatsoever. But the law has another function. It restrains people. It judges we. It's good and it's right before God. It expresses the standards of God. And, and the law cannot, the moral law cannot be uh, ignored or all of a sudden God doesn't care about uh, the way we live our lives. Also, the law reveals God's will and God's standard. It's the perfect law of Christ. Paul says, I'm not under the law, but I'm under the law of Christ, you know, and the scripture reveals God's heart, God's will, God's nature, and the spirit empowers us to obey. So um, the, the spirit enables us not merely to uh, just have the privileges of the nature of Christ, but to live that out and obey that, not to be slaves to sin, but to obey from the heart. How do we obey from the heart? Well, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, it tells us that God will give us a new heart. And put a new spirit in us. He will remove from our hearts that you know your heart of stone and give us heart of flesh that responds to God. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my degrees, decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. Can you see that the function of the Spirit is to liberate us from our weaknesses and our un inability to follow God's uh, amazing will and heart and character. He empowered us. It's a Spirit-empowered obedience. I love this quote from a book called The Whole in Our Holi uh, Holiness. It says, Obedience to the law from a willing spirit as made possible by the Holy Spirit is the proper response to free grace. Obedience is a proper response to free grace. I see Christians who say, we don't have to do anything now. No, no, it's a response to the grace that we received. Our failure to pursue holiness is because we divorce grace from obedience. That is an unbiblical extreme view. The grace that saves us also enables us to obey God's command by the power of the Spirit of God that was promised and given to us to liberate us from our sinful inclination and to enable us to honor God by manifesting His character, obeying the standards and the principles and the will of God that He has for us. I pray that you would feel totally and utterly convicted to balance the grace and the law to balance God's love and our ability to obey Him. And we'll talk in the next segments uh, in the future about what is it really to put the effort to obey God. Until then, God bless you. Look forward to seeing you next time.